May 2018, the 36th Amendment in the Republic of Ireland was voted in favour of by the population, allowing abortion services to commence in January 2019. In Northern Ireland, March 2020, a new framework for abortion services took effect, therefore allowing abortion right across the whole island of Ireland. Dr. Paul Coulter has a background in medicine and a background in theology and he is uniquely placed therefore to help us think through some of the uh, ethics connected to uh, this particular issue for Christians across the island. I hope you find this extended episode of the Saints and Scholars helpful at this particular point in our history as an island. Well, we're really uh, glad today in the Saints and Scholars podcast to be joined by uh, Paul Coulter. Paul, maybe you could begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and maybe what you currently are doing for work. Uh, Yes, thanks, Andrew. I am glad to be with you today on the the podcast. I live not too far from you, Andrew, in Lisburn, County Antrim, Northern Ireland, and uh, my work, daily work, is primarily in a Christian organization called Living Leadership, providing training and support for Christian leaders. But I also have a strong interest in connecting Christian faith with contemporary culture. And with a group of friends, I'm part of something called the Center for Christianity in Society. And we seek to engage with some of the issues of our time and present a thoughtful Christian voice on that. Um, I should say I live with my wife, Garling, who's uh, from Malaysia. She's a medic, elderly care doctor, and with my children, who are teenagers, um, currently still homeschooling as we record this due, due to the pandemic, but um, soon hopefully going to go back into the classroom. Um, but I suppose my own personal work history, I started out work as a doctor, so I'm a medical doctor by background, not practicing. Uh, then I moved into pastoral ministry then into teaching theology and now in this role uh, with a UK-wide remit training and supporting leaders. Well, Paul, we're really glad to have you uh, part of this particular episode, especially given all of that wealth of experience in your background. And also just even now, I know your uh, voice that uh, a lot of people have been looking to to get uh, maybe a a more thought-through idea from a Christian ethic, how do we respond to this current situation where the island of Ireland, both north and south, has changed so fast in terms of the way they view all of the ethics around uh, the child in the womb. Uh, When we talk about abortion, you know, we are on this island talking about two different jurisdictions. And at one level, that makes it a lot more complicated. Uh, They each uh, has their own history. And yet, I guess the commonality between the two is there's been a massive change in a very short space of time, it seems, uh, in terms of the the way a significant number of people, both in the North and in the South, think about this particular issue. Maybe you could help us, first of all, understand a little bit about just how we got into this present situation we find ourselves in, and maybe... Just because we are talking about uh, two different areas, maybe you could start by talking a little bit about the situation in the south. Um, sure. And by the way, I, I don't claim to be any expert in law, um, so I'll try and summarise that. It's also, as folks will understand, quite a quite a long story. But it's really 2018 that was the key turning point moment for the Republic of Ireland, um, and uh, that 
was the repealing of the Eighth Amendment to the, the Constitution of the Republic. So that Eighth Amendment had been made in 1983, and about two-thirds of the voters in a referendum in 1983 voted to give equal rights in law, or to recognise, rather, because human rights aren't something you can give, you recognise them, um, so that they, they recognised in the Constitution that unborn children had the same right to life as people outside the womb. Two-thirds voted that way. And then in 2018, the, there was a, a, another referendum, and this time was for the 36th Amendment, which was to overturn the 8th Amendment. So to remove that um, 8th Amendment provision for the same rights in law for unborn children. And in that vote, two-thirds, roughly, voted again for that amendment. In other words, to do away with the amendment that had been brought in by two-thirds of voters in 1983. So that's really quite a dramatic shifting, uh, turning around. Um, the background of that, there, there is a, a background, of course, always to these things, but the thing that people may well remember that had really brought this issue to the fore was the tragic death in 2012 of Savita Halapanavar. I may not pronounce that correctly, but Savita, um, who had sepsis due to an incomplete miscarriage, uh, the baby was still there in the womb and uh, she got an infection. Uh, she had discussed abortion with her doctors and had been told she couldn't have that by law. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the infection was mismanaged as well. And she uh, ended up dying. And that was really the rallying cry in many ways for groups that had already been asking for abortion to be introduced. But there was a tragic story, an individual case that was, was tragic um, and the issue at the beginning was, well, you know, we've got to have um, provision for women whose lives are at risk. That was the, the call. But the referendum actually took away all protection in law for unborn children, that idea of equal rights for them, rather. And then the legislation that was brought in after that to uh, allow for abortion um, went way beyond that. So abortion for any reason up to 12 weeks. Uh, and then beyond that, if there's a risk to the mother's life, a risk of serious uh, harm to her health uh, or a fatal condition in the baby, a condition that the baby isn't expected to live with for long after birth. And that, that, that's helpful and it helps us understand something of the personal emotion around the subject matter there in the Republic. What, what about in the North? The story is a, a little bit different. Can you help remind us and bring us uh, back into an understanding of that also? Yes, well, in, in the South, um, the process was very much referendum. Of course, there's a constitution that requires a referendum to change it. So there was a popular vote and then a vote within the elected body that represents the voters in the Republic. In the North, the story was quite different in that it was something that was imposed on Northern Ireland from outside, from Westminster, um, despite the fact that the only votes that there had been in the Northern Ireland Assembly had actually been against a change in the law. So um, whilst in the South, the thing that really was the rallying cry, as I've put it, was this question of the mother's life. In the North, it was the question of so-called fatal fetal abnormality. So this idea of babies that cannot survive long after birth. And so there were high profile cases. One 
lady in particular who was uh, quite a high profile case. There were cases that were brought to the courts. There was a, a ruling in the courts that our law was inconsistent with human rights. Uh, there was a, a committee of the United Nations that is to do with women's equality that said this was an issue of female equality because only women need abortions in their language. Um, and so that this was incompatible. The UK government in Westminster followed that line and said, well, if the Northern Ireland Assembly, which at that time was suspended, isn't in position to do that, we will have to step in on this human rights issue. And so in July of 2019 in Westminster, there was a vote to uh, remove the protection in law that goes back to the mid 1800s of the life of the unborn child. Uh, so that was removed. And then the requirement for, um, for a provision for abortion on certain grounds to be introduced. Uh, that then led to the, the eventually in March of last year, 2020, just uh, a year uh, ago, to the provision for abortion up to 12 weeks for any reason. And beyond 12 weeks, up to 24 weeks, if uh, there is a balance of risk to the mother's life that is greater, if you go ahead with the pregnancy, the risk is greater than if it's ended. And even beyond 24 weeks, in cases of uh, severe disability or, or abnormality, um, or where there is a concern about the mother's mental health, a severe risk to her mental or physical health. Um, and so that's fairly widespread provision for abortion as well. Not exactly the same as the South, actually a bit more rural, a bit more wider provision. Um, but uh, it didn't happen. There was a consultation in the middle of that process and 79% of the people who responded to that actually said broadly that they didn't want any change in the law that we had. Northern Ireland law had already provided for the situation where a mother's life is at risk for uh, an abortion in that immediate circumstance to save her life. Unlike the South, that hadn't been clear in the South, um, or at least had been, been actually not legal or judged not legal in the South in the case of that, uh, the lady that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in the North, we already had that provision, but that, uh, that wasn't enough. This question of so-called fatal fetal abnormality was, the again, the pressing point, but we've ended up with much, much wider provision for abortion than that. Paula, one level, the question I want to ask you next seems uh, very uh, oversimplistic, I guess, because you, you've already highlighted very clearly in the two different histories, just uh, th there's almost two different narratives that have unfolded. But in order to help us be able to understand, especially uh, Christians who would be listening maybe to this, to try and understand something of the strength of feeling that is felt by those who are uh, promoting and behind a pro-choice ethic, what's primarily driving them? What what are their main concerns? Uh, you know, across the island. Well, um, uh, you know, I would I would want to start off on that um, by saying that that. But in both situations, both the case in the north and in the south, those individual hard cases, if we can call that, call it that, clearly invoked a, a compassionate response, a sense of, you know, how could you allow a, a woman to die in this way? How could you expect a woman to 
go ahead with a pregnancy where her baby uh, will not live long after birth. I mean, why, why would you in, uh, force her? This, the, the language, of course, turned into then you're forcing her to do this. And, and uh, together with that, in Northern Ireland, um, the question of, of women traveling across the water to England, and how could you force women who are in a difficult situation already feeling emotionally fraught? Um, the argument is that women do not choose abortion lightly. Uh, they are in difficult situations. They can't see a way through. Um, and this is very uncompassionate. And, and I understand that. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that is part of the narrative because our hearts ought to go out to those, those women and those families. Um, and the question, of course, of, of equality for women and the idea that, that this disproportionately affects women, that women can be left with tough choices when the father is maybe not involved or not present. All of that I understand, but I do believe that's a misplaced compassion. So I think there's something there that resonates with, um, with a compassionate heart that is part of God's creation of us, the ability to feel compassion for others. But I do believe it's a misplaced compassion. Um, and I can explain that in a moment, but that's certainly part of the narrative. But really underlying that, I think, is a stronger narrative, a stronger value, um, which is, is not so much about compassion, but about choice. You use that word pro-choice. It's the idea of autonomy, the autonomy of the individual. My body, my choice, I suppose, is the mantra um, and that, of course, is a very, very strong value in our culture more widely in all sorts of areas. No one should have the right to decide for me other than me. No one should have the right to impose something on me. This is my choice. Uh, again, I have some sympathy with that. I mean, I, I think it's horrific to hear of situations still in the world today and in, the, in history, maybe even in the history of this island, where people have felt that they were forced into a particular avenue, um, they weren't respected as individuals who could make their own choice. That's, that's uh, I mean, as a Christian, I would be fully committed to the fact that people should not be forced into things. But we all recognize there need to be limits to our choices um, for the sake of others who also ought to have a choice um, and for the sake of harmony in society. And, and so, I don't think there are very many, if any, people who would actually argue choice goes all the way in everything. Um, and so the third strand in this is really um, the devaluing of the unborn child. And so that idea that the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution in the South, which was saying unborn children are human and should have the same protection in law as everybody else. Well, that was one value. Clearly, that value was overturned opening the door for abortion. Um, and when you look around this, you know, as to how abortion is discussed by those who provide abortions, um, by those who even uh, talk about the issue, often the language is dehumanizing. You'll hear about a clump of cells rather than a, an unborn child. You, you know, you hear words like fetus, which is a medically used word, but used in a way that seems to imply it is something different before birth than after, but it isn't. Um, you know, you hear things like it's part of the mother's body, and that is just medically, scientifically untrue. From day one, from fertilization, the new embryo and unborn child is, is a unique individual genetically. So there's no question this is a living, unique, individual human being. The only question becomes, is this a human person? 
So once you separate those two things, you end up with this category that one Christian philosopher describes as a, 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 not a human non-person. That's quite a, quite a worrying concept that there could be human living individual human beings who are not regarded as persons in law. I think many of us would be deeply troubled about that if it was a person with a disability or with dementia um, or of a particular ethnicity or any of these other distinctions after birth, but somehow before birth, because the baby is unseen and because of this narrative of autonomy, uh, that baby is not regarded as an individual with its own rights. I think that's just wrong. I think everybody should be able to recognize that's wrong. We do need a compassionate response to women who are in need and are struggling, in the, especially in the hard cases. I don't want to minimize that. But this is a question for all of us in society. Do we, is our response to that compassion in the proper sense that we will be there for and with those women to give them and their babies all of the care that they need? Or will it be what I think is a callous actually response of saying, well, let's just throw away those lives. Let's end those lives. Let's give them no value in law. It's an easier world without them. Um, that doesn't solve anything. It doesn't remove the pain for the mother of the loss of the hopes that she had if this was a pregnancy that was wanted. But actually where this debate has come down to is that the lives of those babies are worth everything if the mother wants them. In other words, everything will be done to help the pregnancy continue, to save the life of the baby, to take it to an intensive care if it's born prematurely. And if it is not wanted by the mother, it has no value at all. That, that cannot be right, that the value of a unique individual human being depends on whether somebody wants it or not. So one of my concerns is that when we go down the line of normalizing abortion and accepting this idea of choice, what we're actually doing is undermining the value of life for everybody. Because what's to say that if I reach a point in my life when I am feeling that I am unwanted by anybody, why should I hold back from taking my own life? Or why should anybody else hold back from taking my life for that matter? I mean, the consequences in terms of, of becoming a, a, a life-rejecting society instead of a life-affirming society, I think, are immense. Paul, you, you, you've... Uh already started to kind of unpack a lot of the philosophical and ethical problems with that uh, pro-choice argument um, and, and and there's lots of people who I guess would fall into that pro-life camp from a range of different religious philosophical persuasions as well and, and yet at the same time uh, as Christians there are certain particular ideas that ground our ethic and cause us to align. Can you maybe help us think through that a little bit more? Um, yes, Andrew. I mean, I think I think this is 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 really quite important that that as Christians we understand why that uh, value of life is so significant. And um, and and I do think. I mean, you can't you can't separate those values. I, I personally believe that on this issue, it ought to be possible for any um, right thinking person who examines the evidence to realize there is no question and this is I mean there really is no debate anymore medically as to when life begins life begins at fertilization a unique genetic individual who is distinct from the mother so this question of personhood comes into the argument um, and that can only be established personhood can't be established on the basis of science of the biology of development 
it has to be established on philosophical grounds, if you like, on the basis of your worldview. Um, what do you really believe? Now, I think the only logical answer, if you are committed to a purely scientific, um, naturalistic view, in other words, the idea that, that there is nothing physical, how can you make a distinction between some living human individuals being persons and some not? On what basis do you do that? There's no logic. Other than that, actually, the, the people who I think are most logical on that side of the argument are those who say that it is self-awareness that makes a person. And that's something that doesn't develop until about 18 months after birth. In other words, there are people who would argue that, well, if we allow for abortion, we should also allow for infanticide of babies up to that age, because until the moment when they can look in a mirror and know that it's them rather than uh, some second baby, uh, then they're not fully persons. I think that's wrong. I think most of us would find it abhorrent to think that you could kill a one-year-old baby uh, for that reason. But I do think that's logically consistent. And so the, the question becomes, what makes a human person and what gives a human value anyway? So human rights try to give a value to people, maybe not to unborn children on the island of Ireland anymore, but to people after birth, that's inconsistent. But they ground that really just in, in the idea that, that that's just obvious, that it's obvious that people have value. Whereas from a Christian perspective, that has a real grounding and a real root because our story goes back to creation and, and God creating us human beings with a distinct value and purpose created in the image of God, uh, created to reflect God's likeness to the rest of creation, to rule over it under God's authority. Um, and, and that is what gives a fundamental value to human life. You might have heard the, the illustration of the coin the coin has the image on it in, in the north, obviously it's the queen's head, um, something different in other countries. But you know that image gives it the stamp of, of legal tender. You know, it doesn't matter how battered the coin is, it still has that value. And likewise with human beings, we bear the mark of our creator. We're created in his image. We're not perfect. All of us are imperfect. All of us um, both in our actions and thoughts, but also our bodies are imperfect. Some we class as disabled, others we don't, but actually none of our bodies are, are perfect and free from disease and weakness. And that's because sin has affected the world. But that doesn't diminish the value of an individual because the value of an individual human being in biblical terms is the fact that God created them, God loves them and knows them individually. And they have the capacity to relate to God as the person they are and the potential to live eternally with God. So they're created by him. They are loved by him so much that Christ died for them and they have potential for eternal life with God. These three things, creation, salvation, redemption, the value that Christ put on them and the possibility of eternal life with God um, are the three bedrock principles, the three legs of the stool that for humans gives every individual a unique value that isn't diminished by their weakness, their disability. It isn't diminished by the fact that they are uh, in the womb or out of the womb. It isn't diminished by their uh, potential or even their, their actions, even the worst sinner, whatever that would mean, uh, has the same intrinsic worth and value. And so as, as Christians, we're called to honour every individual 
Um, there, I mean, there are people who say, well, look, because the fall has happened, because sin has come into the world, um, we can't talk about the image of God. But the Bible does. Genesis 9, after the flood, God repeats this principle that human life is precious and sacred because it is created in the image of God. In Genesis 5, you have this amazing statement that says that God created Adam in his image and likeness, and then Adam had a son in his likeness. In other words, the, the likeness of God is passed down through what we now would call genetic inheritance. Uh, and from day one, from fertilization, the, the embryo, which, by the way, at that stage in development is the size roughly of a grain of sand. It's not invisible, not microscopic. It's actually like a grain of sand. But that unique little individual, tiny as it is, is a descendant of Adam, genetically human, created by God unique in the history of the world. No one like them before, and there will never be after. Unique genetic combination, and is precious and deserves to be regarded as precious, protected in law, cared for by the rest of us, given the opportunity to know and to relate to God. And that's why, from a Christian point of view, we care deeply about this. But on the flip side, women are precious creations of God. And should be given all of the compassion and support because relationships break down and because pressures come in. But, but you can't weigh those two things up. Here is a unique individual with a, a, a preciousness that you can't diminish. No circumstance makes it right to end that person's life. What The, the correct answer is to say, let's give all of the support to the mum that will enable her to carry through with this. But not to say, let's just take away any value of that unborn child and allow its life to be ended. So I, I hope that grounds it. It's a, for, for me as a Christian, it's the gospel, really. It's the gospel that runs from creation to the redemption that is in Jesus and to the new creation, the hope of glory with God that, that frames everything and that certainly frames this value of every human life. Yeah. But Paul, listening to your, your answer, it reminds me of a, conference I attended a couple of years ago, Evangelical Fellowship of Ireland, and Sinclair Ferguson was speaking at it. And one of the main points he made in uh, his address uh, to a group of pastors was really to make sure that our gospel, when we're presenting our gospel, doesn't start with sin. It has to start at the beginning. Uh, and the dignity and the design and the, the that, that, that God imprint and uh, he, he says, he was saying that, that especially in the world we find ourselves in right now, that it's become increasingly secular and struggling with personhood uh, at lots of stages of life, uh, but, but struggling with where that sense of dignity is afforded. We, we need that greater emphasis on his creation design. And that's so helpful because even when you were answering, and I say this to commend you, there, there was a sense of, warmth and care and dignity now not to give you a big head but to commend the example believe me Andrew there's no there's no cause for a big head at all because any of that is purely by God's grace I mean that's not in me um, or in any of us and I, and I do believe that is but I do believe that's the right way to approach these things this is not and um, this is about the precious value of life it's about people who are loved far more greatly by God. I mean, we hear all these ideas of self-love, self-worth, self-confidence. Um, yourself and your evaluation of self will always be a shaky basis for anything in life. 
But God's evaluation of us is so much greater than that. So one of the most beautiful Psalms in the Bible that talks about the development of the unborn child actually talks about how wonderful and how many are your thoughts towards me, O oh God. I mean, that God's thoughts about us are far bigger <laughs> than our thoughts. His, his, his hope and purpose for us is so much greater. But of course, if we're going to know that, we have to respond to him. We have to come to him in faith. Um, the, the sad bit is that when we walk away from that and live our lives without him, we, we end up diminishing our own value either because we think, well, we're nothing more than sort of beasts, highly evolved monkeys, um, and therefore don't have any ultimate value. Or we think, well, we're so highly evolved, we can be better than that and we can create our own identity. But both of those, one of those sounds a lot better than the other, but it actually diminishes who we are. Only God knows what we can be. Only God can make us that. And to become that, we have to surrender ourselves to him. Um, so there is a call to acknowledge that. That's a, that's a truth that I believe, that Jesus is Lord and that shapes everything. Um, but I would, I would want people to know that that's a joyful discovery. It might sound burdensome when you don't know it, but once you know the Lordship of Jesus, you know the joy that that is, and that's a wonderful thing. And it affects every aspect of life. Paul, I guess what, one of the fears I have, even in a podcast episode like this, is that people go out with their, uh, you know, placards and scowls and, you know, they shout about an issue because they do care about it, but, but, but it's not communicating the fullness of our Christian message of hope and love and care. Maybe that's a good place to uh, finish on. Help us um, think about what does it look like to have this... Christian ethic, uh, a conviction formed, to play a role in engagement with society, but in a thoughtful kind of way. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we have to keep um, truth, if I can put it that way, truth and grace or grace and truth um, together. So one of the remarkable things, I think it's one of the most remarkable statements about Jesus. There are many of those in the Bible, but in John chapter one, um, the writer of that gospel, John, writes um, that we beheld, we saw his glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. There was this in the character of Jesus, which flows through the Old Testament. It's there when God reveals himself to Moses. It's there in the praises of Israel and the Psalms. It's there in the prophets. And here is John saying, this is what we saw in Jesus, that there was always truth and always grace. I think as, as human beings, we struggle to hold these two things together. So we think that grace, gentleness, kindness, love is just kind of, oh, let me throw my arms around you and it'll be all right. And we'll just ignore the problems and, you know, come on, son, it's fine. Um, but actually, we've got to have truth because love that is untruthful is not really love. But on the flip side, if we become all about truth and righteousness and justice, which are important, but if we don't realize the grace of God, in other words, that I deserve God's judgment as much as anybody else. I mean, it's not, I don't come at this as superior to, as, you know, I've got this sorted and you don't let me condemn you for your sin or let me tell you where you've gone wrong uh, as if I haven't. Um, and, and I'm afraid that the placarding approach can seem that way. And I do agree with you, Andrew. I think 
many of those, and, and I understand it. I am. I I can't explain. I can't even put it into words. Sometimes how aggrieved I am by the turn that we've taken as regards abortion. Uh, I you know I I have delighted over the years in the fact that my wee country, <laughs> North and South, was was you know was taking a a a, a correct view of the value of life. Um, I never thought of that in terms of putting hardship on women. Maybe I and others should have been saying a lot more about that earlier, about making sure good care and provision was there for women. I accept that. Um, but but to suggest that the answer to the needs of women is to to kill their babies or allow their babies to be killed just doesn't doesn't compute. It doesn't square. And so, I, I mean, I grieve at that. It, it distresses me. Um, I don't know that I can say it makes me angry. Maybe it does, but but no more than some of my own <laughs> sins and weaknesses, I, I hope. Um, because sin ought to make us outraged. It ought to make us angry. But we also need to be able to look at sinful people and to have compassion and love for them. Um, there's a beautiful little phrase about the Lord Jesus that he takes from the Old Testament prophets that says a bruised reed or that said about him, a bruised reed he won't crush a smouldering wick he won't put out. And Jesus never came to people who were broken and stamped on them. <laughs> he came to them and, and lifted them up and called them to himself. And sometimes they followed and sometimes they rejected him. But he always showed them gentleness and compassion. The people he had strong words for were the religious hypocrites, the people who claimed that they knew God um, and were not being consistent in their obedience to God and their love for others. Uh, people like me, I think uh, Jesus would want to rebuke a lot more, um, but he wouldn't fudge the issue of truth either. So I think what we need to do is to speak absolutely clearly and to serve with compassion. So so we need to speak clearly. We need to be able to humanize. That's not the right word. We don't humanize an unborn child, but to acknowledge the humanity of the unborn mm -hmm. child by using different language. I think we need to have a lot more conversations about that. We may need to speak to women who might contemplate having an abortion and explain the, why this is a problem, um, but let's serve as well because that woman will need support. And am I willing to give that? Am I giving to charities, organizations that provide supportive counseling for women in that situation? that provide financial resources or a roof over their head. There are good organizations like that. Um, and I can certainly encourage you to check those out. Um, and and so, so what am I doing about that? Um, but the speaking bit, let me just say a little more about that, because my go-to verse for that is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. And the, the Apostle Paul there is talking about commending the gospel primarily to people, but I think it runs true for everything that we, we speak. He says we, we don't distort the truth. We don't uh, twist it. Verse one, verse two, he says, but we, we, I'll paraphrase, but we speak the truth plainly, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's our responsibility. Clear, plainly presenting biblical truth, which in the case of abortion is that it is um, it is wrong to take the life of an unborn child. That life has the same value as anyone else. That is wrong. It is sinful. To do that clearly so that we are speaking with honesty before God and commending ourselves to their conscience. We can't 
duck that issue. We can't avoid it. We must have a clear statement about that. And we must have clear compassion. And the best way that I can recommend to do that, but I, it's because I'm involved in a thing called NI Voiceless, which has organized physical gatherings at Stormont when we were able. This year, we wanted to have one of those for the year since the law, the change in, in regulations came in. We can't do that physically, but this coming Saturday, the 20th of March, we're doing that online. So if someone goes on that day to our website, nivoiceless.com, they can post their name and their message about this issue. We will put a pin on a map outside Stormont. And if they join us at four o'clock, they can watch a video that leads us through a two minute silence. And we'll also tell them how they can serve on this issue. On the website, we have links to three organizations that you might consider volunteering with uh, or giving to giving some of your time to, because we've got to do that as well as taking a clear stand. Paul, uh, I'm really grateful for the time you've given to us today uh, and, and also just how you have, in a very sad uh, circumstance, we find our country both north and south in, yet how you raised the gospel as hope. Do you know that... You know, God has given dignity and God saves and and God gives opportunity for glorification and life with him. And I, I'm so glad that you highlighted that. That extends to everybody. I mean, I want yeah. to make that absolutely clear. Someone who, who realizes they have done something wrong, there is forgiveness and restoration. And the Lord holds the lives of those babies that have been lost as well. So there is that hope. But, you know, I just want to make that clear that I'm not I'm not here to condemn anybody, but to lift up that message of hope that is in Christ Jesus. So thanks. I mean, that that's so important. Yeah. Th- thank you so much for your time. Saints and Scholars podcast seeks to talk about the history of Christianity on the island of Ireland and consider some of the contemporary issues that Christians continue to face here. This uh, particular episode has been an extended one and we want to express our thanks to Dr. Paul Coulter for helping guide us through how we should think about a very important but difficult issue here across the whole island of Ireland. If you would like to hear more from Saints and Scholars podcast, please subscribe or follow to stay up to date with the content that comes out.